0: scripture reading is taken from the book of Mark chapter 1 verses 29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, The people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place, where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord.
1: chord in a day of life uh, by the Beatles feels like we should actually just have ended everything there doesn't it this is probably the most famous chord in music history sorry all you classical lovers out there but uh, I think that's probably the case it is one of those moments in music history that has caused all sort of speculations and rumors Now, I had always been told that they had wheeled nine pianos into the studio and all banged the same chord at the same time to create this massive wall of sound. Isn't that a great uh, rumor? Of course, it turns out that they only had three pianos, but three pianos is still pretty good. And it actually took these legendary musicians multiple takes uh, to get the one chord Uh, largely because John Lennon was so focused on Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, if you know what I mean. Uh, But all part of the mystique, I suppose. And so once they got this take that they wanted of the three pianos, they duplicated it, and then they overdubbed it on top of itself, layering the same recording three times on top of each other. Hence, three pianos sounds like nine, Sorry if I took the uh, the joy and the the mystique out of the that for you, but of course the rumor of nine pianos is is way better. So if you prefer to ignore facts and go with that, you're welcome to. That seems to be a trend on social media these days. Of course, that is not the only iconic piece in this song. Uh, the other is that intense part right before then that we heard. And they had hired an orchestra of 40 musicians. Of course, Paul McCartney, I think, wanted an orchestra of 90, but could only get 40. They came in, and the only music that they were given was on the music in front of them, the lowest note that their instrument could play. And then 24 bars later, the highest note that they could play. And they were instructed to slide as gracefully as possible from the one note to the next note over the 24 bars, and to do it without listening to each other. Then, similarly to the pianos, they took five recordings of the same thing, and they overdubbed it so that it sounded like 200 musicians. Now, some people call these moments a musical genius. Some call it brilliant, experimental, avant-garde art. Of course, others call it just a wise business strategy, a great gimmick to garner attention. Or perhaps just a desperate attempt by posers to try to look like their musical geniuses. Um, either way, they created one of the most iconic musical moments of rock and roll. And while we can speculate on uh, why they did it all we want, the real reason, the real question which no one can answer besides the Beatles themselves is what was their incentive? Was it fame, was it money, or was it simply integrity of the art? Now, our scripture this morning that Adora read for us, like the Beatles song, could be called a day in the life. All of these amazing events that Adora read for us occurred in a 24-bar span. I mean, a 24-hour span. One thing that Mark's gospel Is known for, and this is the passage was from the Gospel of Mark. One thing it is known for is being pretty action-packed. He tells story after story. Jesus went here, and then immediately they did this, and then this, and then this. And he regularly uses a word in the original Greek. Uh, He uses it forty-one times, in fact. Uh, And it simply it means immediately, and it's meant to give a sense of urgency. Now, our English Bibles. Translate this word in a variety of different ways, which of course doesn't help us to catch the urgency that Mark is trying to paint. So when you're reading Mark, watch for words like immediately, as soon as, just as, just then, or even when the something came. Let's also keep in mind that we're only in chapter 1 here. So far, Jesus has arrived on the scene. He's been announced as the son of God. He's called his first disciples to follow him. So now the story is primed and ready to go. And now his ministry begins. Mark paints this action-packed picture of Jesus' first full day of ministry. So this is Jesus' first day in the gospel of Mark that he's like, okay, he's got his followers. He's got some disciples he's going to get out. And get to it. And as we read last week, this first day began on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest, a day of worship for the Jews. So, first thing in the day is that word I told you about. And immediately the Sabbath came. Jesus goes to the synagogue. And immediately the Sabbath came. Jesus goes to the synagogue. He blows everyone away with the authority by which he speaks. Then immediately, he heals a man possessed by an impure spirit. This is what we read last week. And then immediately, word about Jesus spreads all about the region. Then immediately, instead of going to Swish LA for lunch, immediately they went to Simon and Andrew's house. Then immediately, he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And then I guess there's a bit of a break, because the next thing is that night after the sun has gone down, The whole town comes, and Jesus heals many people of diseases and demons. And I'm guessing it was a late night, I mean, it's the whole town, right? And it didn't start till after sundown. Apparently, not only was it a long night, or late night, it was also a short night, because while it was still dark, before the sun came up, Jesus goes off to pray, and the disciples search him out. And we're going to come back uh, to that momentarily. But here in Jesus' first day of ministry in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is painting a day in the life for us. There are a number of themes that occur in this day that are going to continue throughout Jesus' ministry. But uh, if we think of it as a, a day in the life, uh, we can't simply think of it as a day in the life kind of like every other day is exactly the same, on and on, you know, without change. Um, The picture that this sets up is a day in the life, kind of like standing at the top of a steep hill after a fresh snowfall at about, you know, zero to three degrees temperature. And you begin rolling the snowballs down the hill. And once the snowballs start picking up speed, they get bigger and bigger and faster and faster. It's called snowballing. The musical equivalent it is that 24 bars of starting on the same note and slowly getting more intense and more intense and it feels faster and bigger and bigger. This is the picture, This snowballing is kind of what we see in this day in the life. It's that beginning, that first note, which is then going to intensify and get bigger and bigger, faster and faster through the gospel of Mark. Now, some of these themes that Mark presents are exemplars of Jesus' upcoming ministry. That means they're kind of examples that reflect what what the rest of his ministry will look like. And some of these are themes that will snowball as the story progresses. Some of the more exemplary themes are Jesus' preaching with authority, his self-giving loves of the crowds with compassion and mercy, Healing people of diseases and freeing them from unclean spirits or demons. Each of these, of course, they deserve their full attention. Uh, but we're not going to give it to them today. <laughs> Another theme we see in this passage that we can see as a pattern for Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Is Jesus seeking solitude to pray. In our passage today, Mark 1 verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I have to tell you, if I had had a crazy, busy day like Jesus had just had the day before, caring for a whole town of people that didn't even arrive at my door until late into the night, I'm going to sleep in the next day. But Jesus gets up early in the morning before the sun has even arisen, To go and pray in a solitary place. One interesting tidbit is that the word Mark uses here for solitary place is actually the exact same word uh, from John the Baptist in the, the wilderness. And Jesus is being tempted in the desert. This word that sometimes is translated as wilderness or solitary place, it means isolated, desolate, lonely place. Jesus isn't simply locking the bathroom door to get a couple minutes of peace or sitting on the back porch enjoying a morning coffee before the kids wake up. He's wandered off to a desolate place so he could find solitude, so he could commune with his heavenly Father in prayer. Mark tells us specifically of two other times that Jesus goes off, to be alone and pray. One time is in chapter 6, after he feeds 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. And another time is after the Passover feast between telling the disciples he was going to die and be, uh, is going to be arrested and die, and when he prays alone in the garden. Sorry, it's between when he tells them he's going to die and when he does get arrested. And he's praying alone in the garden. This is the same solitary uh, place that he's going to. And in all three of these stories, they are all at a crucial and exhaustingly full time in Jesus' ministry. He seeks out solitude to connect with God. Now, whether he was seeking guidance or a restful recovery from work, To regain his strength, or simply a relational connection with his heavenly Father, we can only speculate, though I imagine there's a piece of all three. But we can confidently say that time alone with God and prayer was of great importance to Jesus, as exemplified in this day in his life. The next verse, however, carries one of those snowball themes in Mark, verse 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Now, this translation isn't a great translation. I think most of our English translations probably don't do a great job of this verse. I think the translators are uncomfortable in making the disciples look bad. But Mark, who actually wrote this, didn't seem to have a problem with making the disciples look bad. When it says Simon and his companions went to look for him, that original wording here is better translated as hunt, pursued. Simon and the disciples hunted Jesus down. This is not a nice, gracious, lovingly, oh, where's our friend? They hunted him down. And the next verse, when they found him and they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. In the words of N.T. Wright, this looking for you connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than to submit and follow. It is a negative looking. Mark is portraying both the disciples and the crowds as intruders. They are hunting Jesus down for their own purposes and desires. This is the picture that Mark is presenting And Jesus' response to Simon and the others seem to confirm this. After hunting Jesus down, interrupting him in his time of prayer and solitude to tell him that everyone wants a piece of the action, Jesus says, let's get out of here. (laughs) I think he's starting to sound a little bit like me. (laughs) Jesus says in, uh, of course, I lost the verse here. Verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else. To the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now we're going to park this theme of seeing the crowds pursuing Jesus as a negative thing. We're going to park this and go back and see yet another theme that is going to snowball throughout the Gospel of Mark. As we heard last week, in this same day in the life, Jesus heals a man who is possessed by an unclean spirit. The evil spirit knows who Jesus is as the Holy One of God, the Messiah. And when the the evil spirit tries to identify Jesus for who he truly is, Jesus commands the spirit to be quiet. Shh, keep your voice down, right? Sam spoke about this last week. But then in our passage again here, later in the same day, Verse 34 tells us, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So, okay, Jesus doesn't want demons to tell people who he is. So perhaps that's, you know, maybe that's because they're demons. Like, they're the bad guys. You don't want them sharing the news. Maybe that's why Jesus won't let them tell people who he really is. But in the verses right after this, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, and after healing him, Jesus gives him a strong warning not to tell anyone what he did. And then later in Mark's gospel, when Jesus famously asks Simon Peter, who do you say I am? Peter replies, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. It's not just the demons that Jesus wants to keep quiet about who he is. It's the people he heals. It's his very own followers that he commands not to tell anyone who he actually is. And of course, as part of the snowballing theme, the more he tells them to be quiet, the more they talk. And whenever they ignore him, the negative consequence, the negative consequence is that more and more people come to Jesus. Here we can bring back that theme of Jesus being pursued and put it alongside this theme of Jesus silencing people from telling them who he is. In verse 45, the story of the man healed of leprosy ends with this. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So now, because word keeps spreading about who Jesus is, he is unable to freely go into the towns. And remember, only seven verses before this, Jesus had just said, Let's go to the nearby towns so that I can preach. This is why I came. (laughs) So within seven words, seven verses, because of the spreading news and people ignoring Jesus' command to stay silent about who he is, within seven verses, Jesus can no longer do what he had just said he had done to go to the towns. And not only can he not go freely into towns, his place of reprieve for prayer and solitude has also been taken away from him. He had to stay in those lowly place, lonely, desolate, wilderness places now, but instead of doing it in solitude, communing with his Heavenly Father, he's now s- constantly surrounded by people. As an introvert who needs his personal space, this story is so stressful. And it only snowballs more and more through Mark, like those chords in that Beatles song building up and building up in intensity. It doesn't seem odd. That crowds coming to Jesus from everywhere, people proclaiming him as Messiah, is a negative thing? Didn't Jesus come to draw people to himself? Isn't more people finding out who he is kind of the whole point of even writing down a gospel? Aren't we trying to highlight how Jesus is revealed, not how he tries to hide his identity? Now there are, of course, a lot of different theories as to what is going on here uh, as to what this is often called the secrecy motif in Mark, and it's found in other gospels as well. Now there are a lot of interesting theories, of course, but I want to share two ideas that I think not only help us make some sense about why Jesus hides his identity at times, but that also helps reveal who Jesus is, and therefore what it means for us as his followers. The first is that it is likely that Jesus wanted to guard against false understandings of his identity. Whenever we read the Gospels from our end of history, we have to remember that the concept of Messiah for the Jews and that end of history in the first century, for them, the Messiah was was of military deliverance. If you were to say to a first century Jew, I think that guy might be the Messiah, their first thought would be, so you mean he's going to raise up an army and bring military victory over our enemies, the Romans? He's going to establish a Jewish kingdom through military might? But while Jesus was the Messiah, he was not that kind of Messiah. He was not the kind of Messiah that everyone was expecting. What Jesus knew, but everyone else didn't know, was that the true Messiah was what the prophet Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. One who lives in humility, one who will not shout or cry out, one who comes to be a a servant and to suffer. So the people Jesus was ministering to first had to unlearn what they had been taught to believe And then learn a whole new understanding and expectation of the Messiah. And this is partially why Jesus only teaches a lot of the kind of deeper things. He only teaches to a small group of disciples. And even when they realize he's the Messiah, he tells them to keep it to themselves. Because they who have been learning from him more than anyone still cannot grasp it. This is also found in the Gospel of John, verse 615, where after seeing miracles and presuming Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that they were expecting, the people intended to come and make him king by force. And so he had to withdraw from them. No, the only point in Jesus' life that people would truly be able to understand what it meant that he was the Messiah, that they could really deconstruct their worldview and then construct it properly anew. Was after his death and his resurrection. This is why his secrecy doesn't make sense to us. Because we know this is the end game. We know this is where it's all going. This is death and resurrection. But they didn't know that. And they would never understand it. Until it had happened. No amount of teaching with authority. No amount of miracles could ever reveal who Jesus truly was as the servant Messiah until he had given his life to death on a cross and then had risen to life again. As commentator commentator J.R. Edwards says, Until the consummation of Jesus' work on the cross, all speculations about him are premature. Jesus' true mission, true kingdom of God, was only possibly fully revealed and understood at his death and resurrection. I think for us, we easily fall into this trap of wanting to focus on the deep truths of Jesus' teaching. Sam talked about this last week. We could see him just as a good teacher. Or we try to focus on the spectacular miracles of his healings. And we build our understanding of Jesus from there. But we need to be careful in doing so not to try to force Jesus to be the type of king we want. But instead, keep his crucifixion central. So that instead of getting caught up in the crowds, we find ourselves on our knees in awe and in humility. Now secondly, while I do think that Jesus came to draw all people to himself... In his humanity and his wisdom, his purposes are not simply to draw a crowd. Jesus very easily could have used spectacle to create an even huger follower than he did, following than he did. But that would not have been true to himself as servant of the Lord or to his message of the kingdom. In our culture, we are obsessed with drawing crowds and we love strategy. Good strategy will draw crowds, and crowds are a sign of success. Our incentives, what end goals spur our energy and our focus, even as Christian, our incentives are often crowds, fame, appearance, financial bottom lines. Yet Jesus, the one who came to draw all people to himself, seemed to do everything he could to keep those things away from himself. I think this is because Jesus' healing and compassion are not about strategy, but are about his being. His incentive is not to draw a crowd, but to love and live out God's kingdom as God's Messiah. Of everything that I read about this passage and the mystery of Jesus' hiding, his identity, what I found most beautiful and convicting was something actually written by John Stott in uh, his book, The Message of Mark. He wrote this. Jesus did not intend to prove that he was by... Sorry. <laughs> Jesus did not intend to prove who he was by his acts of authority and power. He healed out of love for the sufferer. He cast out demons because they had no right to occupy and spoil human lives. He taught in parables because these, like the healings and the exorcism, required a response of humble faith. The disciples could no more understand that in their day than we can in ours. It is part of God's foolishness, as Paul described it, In 1 Corinthians, it is Mark's version of it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not the number of healings and exorcisms, but their meaning which matters. And um, John Stott goes on to write, A life dominated by divine love does not need to work out the comparative influence or prospective successes or failure Of a particular word or deed. I I love that. A life dominated by divine love. Is not about influence. Or success. Or failure. Love says or does what is necessary. And works out the consequences later. In Jesus. People were attracted by the crossing of the boundaries. To reach the outcast and the needy. But what they are meant to discover. Is the love at the heart of it. Sadly, too often they stay with the sign and miss the reality. Love says or does what is necessary and works out the consequences later. What we are meant to discover is the love at the heart of it. Jesus tried to hide his identity in part to avoid the negative consequences of a huge crowd that would impede his ministry, of crowds trying to force him to be the wrong kind of king. And yet, even when they hunted him down in his love, he welcomed them. And then he worked out the consequences later. A life dominated by divine love does not need to work out the comparative influence or prospective status or failure of a particular word or deed I want to say this again. Jesus' healings and compassion are not about strategy, but about being. His incentive is not to draw a crowd, but an incentive to love and live out God's kingdom. His incentive was not to be spectacular, for even if that drew crowds to follow him, it would not draw crowds to him for who he actually was or what he actually came to do. You know Spring Garden? There are lots of non-Kingdom of God things we could do to increase our numbers. It's true. We could sell out to all kinds of different gods, one being the God of entertainment. We could try to entertain people to increase our do- dopamine levels. We could do attractional ministry that is smooth and glossy. We could sell what people want to buy. And then bring more people into the church. And you know what? This has been a tool that's been used in evangelism throughout the centuries. We could do that. But if mere numbers was our incentive as a church, I'm not interested. And I would guess you're not either. If that's what you wanted, you would have never hired me to be the person who stands here and talks. If you're looking for that kind of polish and extravagance. You know, I think of this new pastor that we are uh, planning to add to the pastoral team. Uh, We have a vote on the 28th of February. A big piece of their role will be to move outward. To help us as a church to share holistically, to care holistically for the needs of our collective neighbors. Especially the broken and the marginalized. Well, how are we going to measure the success or the quality of this pastor's ministry. I will say for me it will not be measured in how many followers are gained on Instagram. How many people sitting in our how many new people sitting in our virtual pews or dollars in our virtual offering plate? It will be measured by the revealing and the reflection of the kingdom of God. It will be measured by the incentive to love for love's sake. Now of course, a positive side, a positive side effect of love can be those things, and that love does draw people to itself. But the incentive cannot be numbers and dollars. The incentive of love is love for love's sake. Kingdom for kingdom's sake, Christ for Christ's sake. As we think about our daily lives, what incentives are driving us? The ways you interact on social media, with your family, at your job, your school, your home, places you serve others, or places you serve within the church. What are your incentives what incentives drive me to stand here blabbling on at you are we seeking for gain that reflects ways of the world or are we seeking to love for love's sake when we think about evangelism sharing jesus with the world is our incentive to get more people or simply to love people are we basing our choices and our values on strategizing what will attract people Or on the very being of Jesus and what it means to love him and others with our authentic being. Now we don't know what incentive the Beatles may have had in their hearts. But through this day in the life of Jesus, we can see his incentive of love. And we can choose that same incentive for our own. Please pray with me. Jesus. We are incentivized by all kinds of things. Some are good, some are not so good. But nothing, no incentive is as good or as worthwhile as love. You came so that we would know who you are. You came so you could reveal the Father to us, that you could fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we would know who you are. And yet mysteriously, in your time on earth, you tried to hide that at times. But you did it so that we could understand more fully who you are, that we wouldn't be distracted by the lies of successes The lies of what is a success and what is a failure. The lies of what a true king is. The lies of what power is. But you came so that we would know the truth of what all of these things are. And that they are found in you most deeply revealed and experienced through your death and your resurrection. And most enlivened through your ascension to the heavenly father and your sending of the Holy Spirit. Be with us, God. Help us. Help us to see you and to love you, that our incentives may be to love others for the sake of love. Amen.